0: I would invite you to remain standing in uh, body and spirit as we word and we'll do so very long. Jesus who when he would have come before this side of the Shema are what of course became the basis of the great commandment. So if you'll follow me in Hebrew, then we'll do it together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, um, as you remain standing for the scripture, a a couple of apologies. The first is uh, uh, the scripture is typed wrong in the bulletin this morning. The scripture is going to be Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Verses one through eleven, <clears throat> and the second apology is Hebrews is not usually the book you want to try to go through when you've got tryptophan still in your system or a heavy meal. Uh, it's it's a very very long letter. And a long extended argument that flows all the way through the letter. And so to even pick out eleven verses like I'm doing today is a little bit of a problem. And even if I combine it with the chapter before, chapter three, it makes a, a coherent argument, but it's part of a larger whole. So before I get to chapter four, a word about chapter three. In chapter three, the author of the letter of the Hebrews is talking about um, a psalm, Psalm 95, in which the psalmist is talking about the people that escaped through Egypt wandered in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land and the rest of God in the promised land because of their disobedience in the wilderness. So he quotes from that psalm that says these people missed it. And today you need to listen to God's voice so you don't miss it. So that's the background that he's been talking about as we come to chapter 4 verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, Since the promise of entering the rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you should be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed entered the rest just as God has said. So I declared in my an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. And again in the passage above, that's Psalm 95, he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains then that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fail by following their example of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It's an old story from some years ago, but I feel like it makes sense even today. The about a small country church, and it's time after the sermon for the invitation. And so the pastor gives the invitation, and suddenly from the back of the church emerges a young woman. Now, her story is well known to the people of the congregation. She had grown up in that church. She went away to college, uh, met a young man, uh, drifted uh, from the church, uh, they ran into trouble in their marriage. They divorced. She had gone and bounced around in different towns doing different jobs. And here she was back on the church and Sunday morning walking down the altar. And with great satisfaction, they felt like the story had finally come full circle. But when the organ quit playing before the pastor could open his mouth, she turned and faced the congregation and she said, I wish to unjoin this church. I want to say that the things I formerly believed when I was here, I believe no longer. And she walked right back down the aisle, out the door, and she was gone. The Preacher fumbled for his benediction. I mean, how you follow something like that. And the people in the, in the pews turned to each other and said, she just unjoined the church. Can you do that? Well, it's an old story, but it's true even yet today. People unjoin all the time, just less formally. They begin to find other things to do. They begin to find fault with different things happening in the church. Or they just generally get distracted and less and less become a part of what's going on. People actually unjoin all the time. I tell you that because it doesn't seem very scholarly, but that is precisely the setting for this very long and strange letter called the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. It is a congregation, we believe, somewhere in Italy. Uh, and it's a letter written from 30 to 60 years after the death of Jesus to Jews who had become Christians. But now apparently were thinking of packing it in. They were thinking of unjoining the church. Now, why would you ever do something like that? Well, scholars have lots of theories about what's going on in this congregation somewhere in Italy. One of the theories is that they started as Jews and they just decided it'd be better to go back as Jews. Jews were afforded certain protections under Roman law that Christians were not afforded. So maybe it was that maybe they finally just couldn't warm up to the idea of a crucifi- crucified, Messiah who had not yet come back and freed them. Uh, from their suffering and their pain. And so another theory is they simply had unmet expectations. They expected Jesus would come back soon. And they wonder, where is he? Where is his kingdom? Some people speculate that what's going on is that they, they, like many Christians in the Roman Empire, are undergoing uh, social ostracism and some political pressure. If you were a Christian in the Roman Empire, you you uh, typically were not allowed to vote. In any election, you weren't allowed to go into the marketplace to either sell your goods or to buy goods from other people because you had to burn incense to the false god in order to enter the marketplace. So that didn't usually happen. Some people believe actually that it's come to physical persecution that is wearing out this church. And the author of Hebrews does say in chapter 12, now none of you. Have yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But notice he says, yet. So already there seems to be some physical persecution going on. So perhaps for one or all those reasons, people are thinking of just packing it in. But I was intrigued in a recent uh, book um, written about the letter of the Hebrews. Tom Long, who is a scholar, used to be at Princeton, now he's at Emory in Atlanta said that if you look at the internal clues in the letter of Hebrews, lots of encouragement about uh, don't get tired, don't be weary, lift your, your drooping hands, lift up your head, strengthen your knees, stand up straight. It's obvious that what the pastor or author of Hebrews thinks he's doing is he's writing to a tired congregation they're just weary. Maybe they're tired of going through all the hassle of coming together on the Sabbath and worship when there are so many obstacles to doing so. Maybe they're tired of turning the other cheek in a community where they are facing persecution. Maybe they're tired of waiting on Jesus to come back and he hasn't done it yet. But for whatever reason, says Professor Long, they're tired. And I tend to agree with them because I think you and I know that that tired is, a, it may not be a theological category, but it's a life category. I mean, we get tired. We've known people who get tired. And quite simply, none of us are the same when we're tired. Um, as as probably it doesn't surprise you that on Saturday I, I research and prepare for my sermon by watching uh, all the college sports that I can can take in. And one of the things I've noticed about college football, you probably notice too, that a lot of the offenses now are predicated on running as many plays as quickly as possible on the theory that the defense will be tired and they will not be able to respond in the best way possible. I think that's true in life. When I'm tired, I'm not as compassionate. I don't make as clear headed a decision. I'm just not as fun to be around when I'm tired. And I think what we have here, I agree with Professor Long, is an entire congregation where they're just, they're tired of it. They're tired of it. And they're thinking of just walking away. I remember one commentator on this pad, passage of late Fred Craddock that said that rings true of his experience of church in North America. He said most people when they quit don't quit because of a sharp pain but usually a dull ache. Just Uh, They're tired over and over again. The same things. Nothing seems to be happening. Uh, Nothing seems to change. The same weak human beings are sitting around them every Sunday. And you can give in to that disappointment. Uh, C.S. Lewis years ago wrote a book uh, called The Screwtape Letters. You may be familiar with it. Where the devil, senior devil, is writing a a junior demon assistant. And trying to help him work against Christians. And he said, now one of the things you want to do is when the people you're working on are sitting in the pews on Sunday, remind them over and over again of how utterly ordinary the people around them are and how disappointing these people are that their lives don't stand out or shine any brighter. Focus on the disappointment of nothing new and exciting happening among the people in the congregation. I think, put another way, the scoop tape letters, he's simply saying, remind them that they're tired. Remind them that things are not changing as quickly as they would like. And I think tired is probably a pretty good description of a lot of churches in North America and people sitting in churches. Um, You've sat here long enough to know that in a church there's never enough um, money. There's never enough volunteers. There are more opportunities than you can possibly do in a single week. And one can begin to get a little tired. Heard the story of a guy that uh, was a member of one church and all of a sudden disappeared. And uh, when his friends uh, questioned about it, he said, "Well, now he's over another church." And they said, "Well, why'd you leave?" He said, "Well, I just wanted to go somewhere and sit in the pew, and nobody asked me to do anything." He simply was tired. And of course, the the dirty secret of Christianity in North America is it's not just the people in the pews that are tired. The pastors get tired. A friend of mine was head of the Houston uh, Association of Baptist Pastors for a number of years, Jim Harrington, and he said that the common refrain he heard over and over at pastor's meetings when all these Baptists gathered in a room was this, we are working harder and harder for fewer and fewer results. And that can be tiring. I don't think the story is true, but it's still one of my favorite stories. A church in Dallas relocated next to the expressway, a prime location, and they decided to build a four-story building for education and offices. The pastor asked to be on the fourth story, and, and they weren't surprised by that, but the pastor asked that his office overlook the freeway, not the green space. And so he was quizzed about that, and they said, why do you want an office that looks out on the freeway every day? He said, oh, I just like to look at the cars and see something that moves without me pushing it. Tired. I've been around long enough to realize that one of the sources of tiredness is often anxiety. Just worry and concern. So imagine if you're in the Hebrews church and you're worried about whether the Romans are going to persecute you, whether you'll be able to sell your goods in the market, wondering if the person who sat next to you in church and died and Jesus hasn't come back yet, what is going to become of that person who missed the second coming? All these things, all this anxiety, and it tires you out even more quickly. I have a um, uh, some An acquaintance I know that uh, uh, works at Duke University and one of his jobs is to do all sorts of research in the churches all across America. And he one time said to me about a year ago, he said, there is no way to overestimate. All right, you get that? There's no way to overestimate the amount of anxiety in the North American average local church. Just lots of concern because the world is, tra- is changing and, and quite frankly, that gets tiring and so it's a, for whatever reasons it's a tired church in the hebrews so what do you do well i want to just tell you today that the that the author probably a pastor we don't know who it is male or female uh does one thing that to me is totally not surprising for a pastor he writes a long sermon and gives it to him. That's what this whole book is. If you wonder why Hebrews is such a strange book, it's one long sermon written a style in which they preached in the first century and not so much today. And then the second thing he does is rather surprising in this long sermon, which is full of um, exhortations, encouragement, cajoling, threats and warning to the tired people. There's one thing he doesn't ask them to do. He doesn't ask them to work harder. In fact, what he tells them about is a story from the Bible, and it's a story of rest. He's saying the answer to your situation of anxiety is to rest. And so he does three things. One, he tells a story of some people who missed out on rest. And the story is uh, from Psalm uh, 95. It's the people that escaped from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. God promises them rest in the promised land, but they decide to disobey God. And so they don't enter the promised land. So it's a group of people who had the opportunity to rest and they missed it. And the author to Hebrews says two things about him. He said, one, they were disobedient, which is just kind of a funny phrase for a person writing to Jews, because I don't know if I just found this out fairly recently, but, um, there is no word in the Old Testament. There's no word in Hebrew for, for obedience. So there's no word for disobedience. The word they use that gets translated obey in the Older Testament is the word, and you've probably heard it before, shema, which means listen. So when you're disobedient, it means you are not listening. And so the author says they actually had God preach to them, tell them the good news but they didn't listen. Instead, they looked and they saw no evidence of the promise being fulfilled. So one of the things he said is they were disobedient because they trusted their eyes and not their ears. They looked at the evidence of, of struggle in in, um, in in the wilderness. Just as the people of the Hebrews are looking at the evidence of struggle in the Roman Empire. And they're adding one and one together and they're not getting two. They're like, how can Jesus be on the throne? And all this stuff happened. How can God be in heaven and worshipers killed? They look, and what they see doesn't add up with what they hear, so they reject what they hear, and the biblical word for that is disobedience. I don't know if you've ever been around an observant Jew, but when they're saying the Shema, they'll do this. They'll stand up, and they'll put their hand over their eyes. It's a way of reminding themselves that we live not by what we see, We live by the promises of God that we hear. And remember, it's so consistent in the book of Hebrews because we get that that famous definition that faith is the evidence of things that are un... Anybody? Unseen. Because you don't trust your eyes. You don't trust what you see. You listen instead to what God is saying. So they were disobedient. They just missed it. And he said... And they didn't have faith. They didn't add faith to what they heard. Well... As best we can tell, faith in the book of Hebrews simply means believing that somewhere in this mess God is present. That they, that they were in the wilderness, and they, and they couldn't believe that God was there. They just refused to believe in the midst of their struggle that God could be involved. And so they had no faith, and they paid no attention to what they heard, and they missed the rest. So that's the first thing he does. He said, look, there was a rest, and they missed it. Then the second thing he does, which I think is pretty good strategy, says, now, in the future, there's going to be an eternal rest. There's going to be a Sabbath rest, he said. So basically, he says, I know things don't look great today, but always view today in light of tomorrow, in light of the fact that one day things do come together. And uh, so he reminds them to hold on in the present because of what's coming in the future. <coughs> I'm in the children's sermon this morning, at the other services, Audrey reminded the children of Martin Luther King's famous saying that the moral arc of the universe <coughs> heads toward justice. It's a way of saying the way history's going is one day this all works out, and so we live our in the present in the present in justice. With that sense of where things are going in the future. Another way to say it is what will happen in the future is more important than defining than what has happened in the past. So he tries to remind them of their future and says it's coming. It's coming and I don't want you to miss it. It's interesting that the word that they use in the Bible for rest in the Old Testament is a word that means harmony, peace, serenity, tranquility, Everything coming together. And when they get to the New Testament and it shows up in the Gospel of John, he takes that word and he translates it, wait for it, eternal life. Eternal life is just that rest where everything comes together. So he reminds them, one day it's all coming together. Hang in there. And then finally, and then finally, he lets them know that, There was a rest that was missed. There's a rest that's coming. But you don't have to wait to heaven to experience it. There's a rest that you can experience today. And it's not experienced by uh, inactivity. In other words, rest in the book of Hebrews doesn't mean that I should go home today and not put the lights up on the house. Rest is more about trusting and believing that in this moment I find themselves, even though what I see is not very good, that God is still present, that Christ is still king, that Jesus is Lord. If I were to define how you enter the Sabbath rest today according to the book of Hebrews, it would be this, whatever your present situation is, trust Jesus in it. Remember, some of you remember, seven weeks ago we started this journey on rest. And we started with Jesus' great invitation in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, come to me, those of you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. All the letter to the Hebrews says is rest is available today by trusting in Christ, by seeing him in your life. And it's not through inactivity. The author says, make every effort. But the effort is I will accept and I will believe in this present moment that he is active and I will believe that this present moment is the moment that he wants me to be in. I will believe it not based on what I see. I will believe it based on what I hear. And when you trust that Christ is in your present moment and then when you trust that this place at this time is where you belong regardless of how it is going, then you are beginning To experience rest. It was about a year ago I read a paragraph that really reoriented my thinking about life. Paragraph went something like this. The author said, I've always thought that I should have been someone else or should have been somewhere else or I should have been doing something else to be in the will of God. He said, I have found in recent years that I was completely mistaken. I have learned now That who I am, doing what I can, where I am, is actually the plan of God. And where we are today, even with what we cannot yet see and the things that are discouraging that we do see, it's not a mistake. And if we can believe that Christ is present in this moment and we will live into it as fully as we can with him, then we will discover what the Bible calls rest.